Welcome to Volcano Watch. This is a weekly podcast to update you on the volcanic activity of the week. I'm one of your hosts, Corinne Jorgensen. And I'm your other host, Alessandro Muso. We are PhD students at the University of Geneva. We study volcanoes and we're here to give you all the hot volcano news. First, the weekly volcano news. And then, the focus of the week. It's February 7th at the time of recording, and here are your quick updates. Let's start in the Americas, where we saw ash advisory from Sengay, Sabancaya, Nevado de Ruiz, uh, Fuego, Villa Rica, Reventador, Santeguito, Nevado de Xi'an, and Semi Spotchnoi. Wow, the Americas have been like pretty busy. I can see a lot of our old, usual erupting volcanoes are back at it, um, but also some new entries. So I think this week will be a very challenging competition for the tallest plume of the Americas. Yeah, it was a very challenging competition indeed. So, Alessandro, you did the research for the news this week. Please tell us who won the highest plume competition for the Americas. So the winner for the tallest plume competition of this week American edition is Sabancaya. <laughs> Finally, again. Yeah. With a 7.6 kilometer tall plume. Then we have uh, Nevado de Ruiz at the second place with a 7.3 kilometer uh, plume. And the podium is closed by Sengay with a 7.0 kilometer tall plume. Nice. So starting in the Americas, uh, at Sintiquito in Guatemala, the Caliente Dome has been pretty busy this week. The extrusive eruption is now continuing at really high levels, producing pyroclastic density currents over the west and northwestern flanks. We've also reported a small phreatic explosion, um, which occurred at Turi Alba in Costa Rica and lasted for less than a minute on February 6th. At Fuego in Guatemala, even if the explosive activity is continuing at regular intervals, the lava flow activity seems to quiet down and potentially stopped on February the 3rd. At Calaki uh, in Chile, incandescence has been observed via webcam during the night of January 26th for the first time since the camera was installed in 2012. The alert level remains green. Pavlov in the US is continuing its effusive activity. A lava flow has been pouring down uh, for at least one kilometer from the southeastern vent. Activity is also continuing at the Halama Uma'u crater at Kilauea in Hawaii, but the levels uh, it continues at are really fluctuating and discontinuous. There's been multiple lava emissions which has been detected on the north uh, and east crater rims in the past few days. So, sadly, no news in Europe this week. The Stromboli activity we reported last week at Mama Edna ended, and that's it, basically. That's sad, sad. Yeah, so Asia. Asia was pretty busy as well this week. We saw ash advisories from Semeru, Swanosojima, Kikurachki, Batutara, Lewotolok, Krakatau, Ibu, and Merapi. The tallest plume was uh, Kikurachki with uh, an ash plume reached 4.9 km of height. Uh, at Krakatau in Indonesia, there was a new phreatic lake eruption on February the 3rd. The event has been reported as a steam blast involving gases and old rocks and apparently no new magma. In the following days, the volcano started producing a series of regular explosions with dark and dense ash columns rising for no more than 2.3 kilometers. There was also incandescent material, lapillis, and bombs have also been observed. In Russia, on Kurihalan, Kikurachki activity continued till the 2nd of February, with ash plumes as high as 4.9 km. Then the explosive phase ended, but the degassing activity is still continuing. 
Ash emission activities continued at uh, Aobahambe Volcano, Vanuatu, where a two-kilometer exclusion zone around the crater has been announced. After three months of calm, activity has resumed at Ibeko in the Kuril Islands. A phreatic explosion occurred on February the 6th and has been caught on camera. Um, you can find an original video of the eruption on Instagram from at Elena from Grills, uh, or reposted lots and lots of times on Twitter. At Merapri on February the 6th, two pyroclastic flow ran down the volcano slope for about two kilometers after a partial dome collapse. The exclusion zone has been seted at three kilometers from the summit. So that's it for today. Thanks to our main source is VolcanoDiscovery.com and the Smithsonian Global Volcanism Project. So now it's time for the focus. Let's focus up and do it. Okay, so for this week's focus, we're going to chat a little bit about the Ring of Fire and not the lovely Johnny Cash song, Ring of Fire, which is a great song and I also always think about it whenever I talk about the Ring of Fire or honestly anytime someone says Ring of Fire we'll be in a group meeting one day someone will say Ring of Fire instantly Johnny Cash just singing the Ring of Fire every time and it burns, burns, burns the Ring of Fire the Ring of Fire or the Pacific Ring of Fire is what is commonly known as a ring, indeed, of volcanoes which circle the Pacific Ocean, though is more a horseshoe than a ring. Regardless, this region includes the Kanchakta region of Russia, Japan, the Philippines, Indonesia, Papua New Guinea, and most of the volcanism of the Americas. Approximately 75% of the world's volcanoes are on the Ring of Fire. So you might be wondering to yourself, why? What makes this region so volcanic? Is there an Atlantic Ring of Fire? Okay. There's not an Atlantic Ring of Fire, though the Atlantic Ocean does have some exciting volcanic activity, which uh, we'll probably save and chat, chat about another week. So the reasoning for why this region around the Pacific Ocean is so volcanic is that it's because of plate tectonics. Plate tectonics are what drive most volcanic activity on our planet. Though there are some exceptions, specifically mantle plumes, which are really cool, but we will leave them for another day. So, what are plate tectonics? Okay, so it takes very simply explain the plates of the Earth. Is I like to think of the Earth kind of like a spherical puzzle. And uh, all of the different puzzle pieces that make up the Earth are the plates. Now, there's many plates on the Earth's surface, but some are a bit bigger, like the ones that most people live on. Um, and there's seven main ones, uh, which is the African plate, the Antarctic plate, the Eurasian plate, Indo-Australian plate, the North American plate, the Pacific plate, and the South American plate. Now, there's also lots of smaller plates, too, which are also like pretty important, such as the Cocos, Nazca, Arabian plate, uh, the Indian plate, Philippine, and the Juan de Fuca plate. You may have heard, heard about these plates in the news. The theory behind plate tectonics is relatively new. In the early 1900s, Alfred Wigner proposed the idea of continental drift because he saw the South America and Africa looked like puzzle pieces that once fit together, maybe. Now, this idea was really latched onto and kind of solidified by paleontologists who are the fossil people of the world. Uh, they found fossils of similar species on continents that were really, really far away. Now, Alfred's exact theories are not 
perfectly correct, but this was one of the first times that we had thought about our planet in this dynamic and changeable way, and this paved the way for our modern ideas of plate tectonics. One of the main ideas of how we understand plate tectonics nowadays is through what is called the Wilson cycle. Most people who have taken an introductory geology course might have already heard about this. There are six main stages to the Wilson cycle. Number one, continental rifting. Number two, sea floor spreading, causing there to be formation of new young oceanic crusts. Number three, the formation of large ocean basins or mature oceans. Number four, the initiation of subduction, where one plate goes underneath another plate. Number five, the closure of ocean basins through continued subduction. And finally, number six, continental collision after subduction has, has occurred and finished up. And this is the mountain building stage. Yeah, like Mount Everest. Mm -hmm. So to circle back to volcanic part of the history, the Pacific Ring of Fire is around the Pacific Plate. And around it, there are several trenches which are formed by subduction. The Pacific Plate is going under some of the other plates, and this subduction is what caused much of the seismic activity and volcanism. Okay, so we have one plate that's kind of like going underneath another plate, but how does that result in these crazy mountains that split hot rocks into the air, also known as volcanoes? Okay, well, it's a pretty actually complicated and nuanced process that our knowledge of continues to evolve over time. Um, but like the really short simplified version is that there is a key ingredient in making volcanoes from subduction settings, and it is water. As summarized in Grove et al. 2012's review paper, they state that water is the key ingredient in generating magma in subduction zone settings. Where is this water coming from, you might ask? Well, actually, there are a lot of minerals that can store H2O in its mineral structure. For example, amphibole or serpentine. Uh, higher pressure and temperature, which can be reached via subduction, for example, <laughs> these minerals can change and lose their hydrous component. This means that they release water into the system. So water can change the melting point of the overlying material. And generally, it's agreed that the overlying material is something called a mantle wedge, which is essentially a part of the mantle that's kind of trapped between the subducted crust and the crust that's above it. Anyways, this water can change the mantle and some of the other material that's around it to change from a solid state to a liquid state. And in this liquidy state, it can travel up through the crust and eventually reach the surface and cause the eruptions that we know and love. And also the ones we don't love because they cause a lot of problems and hurt people and... Yeah. So another interesting thing about subduction and the Ring of Fire is the speed component of it. Not all crust subducts at the same speed. Different plates converge at different rates, uh, but usually it's quite slow, similar to the same speed of your nails growing, actually. So, are we introducing Corinne after the tallest plume competition, the fast plate competition? <laughs> <laughs> we could, we could, we could do that. But I think it wouldn't change very much from week to week. <laughs> no. <laughs> So, for example, in the Ring of Fire, the subduction around Japan varies from 4 to 9 centimeters per year, where in South America, the plate convergence varies depending on which plate is subducting under the South American plate. 
So the northern section of the Andes uh, are subducting at a rate of about 7 to 9 centimeters per year, while the austral volcanic zone, the tip of the Chile and Argentina, result from the subduction of the Antarctic plate at only 2 centimeters per year. Rate of convergence and even the angle of convergence and the angle of the slab and these are all things that can affect the volcanism of a region. So it's pretty cool to think about that volcanoes happen on these small scales, but they're really affected by these big scale processes, these global processes, which is pretty cool. Yeah, it's very, very cool. So uh, that's it for today. So I hope you like this mini shot about subduction volcanism and the ring of fire, of course. <laughs> Yeah, in future we might do something similar, uh, like this little mini chat uh, on rift settings or mantle plumes. As always, thanks to our sources, sceinfo.edu, uh, Wilson et al. 2019, Columbia, edu's uh, page about subduction zones, Grove et al. 2012, Ichikawa et al. 2016, the National Geographic uh, piece on the Ring of Fire, and wage at 1984. Thank you for spending some time with us today and see you next week. And the pizza plate. That is the plate where I put my pizza on top.